91.5 WHMP. Hi, Dan Torres. What's happening, Buzz? You have a good weekend? Uh, I had a, well, I had an interesting weekend, and it's a, that's a longer conversation, Ooh. but I thought you were going to ask if I had a good day. Did you watch the baseball any baseball this weekend? I Come didn't. On. I, uh, well, uh, I don't want to put a, a damper on anything, but um, the weekend was devoted to our friend, our dear friend, Caroline Murray. I was one of the three eulogizers at her thing, and then we had my wife and I, uh, starting at 4 a.m. on Sunday, we cooked for the family and baked for the family for 30, I think, 36 people. Uh, we, uh, I, w- I was a prep chef uh, sweating hard, and at about one o'clock, we basically collapsed and uh, and plopped and read our way through the rest of the day. So I didn't get to see much of anything, but I I did get a chance to say goodbye to our friend. Yeah, well, that's more important than I guess watching the Phillies and the San Diego Padres. But you know, yeah, you know, but I know that your your guys uh, the, the lost to the Phillies. But, see, uh, see, I just wish it was rigged a little bit so we could get the <laughs> Yankees against the Padres because people would watch Yankees. The Padres. Well, now speaking of rigged, speaking of rigged, I want to tell you about today. Today, this morning, as you know, I covered for Venluma here, and we talked to um, Senator Joe Comerford and Tara Jacobs, who is uh, running for governor's council, and um, and we had a really good day um, this morning. Then I went up to GCC, where we talked about the election and um, uh, trying to get students to make sure that they register and vote. And I was there with uh, Representative and soon-to-be Senator Paul Mark after November 8th. I'm certain, confident that he's going to um, win that election. But um, it was great to be in an educational environment. But being in an educational environment just uh, made me even more aware of the news that I woke up to this morning, which was the nation's, what's euphemistically called the nation's report card. It is uh, this congressionally mandated analysis of how students are doing nationally and particularly in math and uh, and in reading and grade four and grade eight. And the news wasn't so terrific. The news uh, indicated that there is a decrease in, um, in performance standards nationwide in this congressionally mandated assessment of educational progress. It's, uh, uh, called me immediately to uh, to to call uh, my uh, my uh, Mohawk Trail uh, Regional School District Superintendent, the extremely competent and extremely experienced Superintendent Cheryl Stanton. And at last minute, I noticed that she was there in professional development, working with teachers all day to uh, work to do their jobs as well as is possible. And she said yes. And so she's on the phone after my long-winded. Uh, introduction and hello, Cheryl. Hi, Buzz. Thanks for having me today. It's a pleasure, and it, it just we had to get by the Phillies, get by Greenfield <laughs> Community College, get by the November eighth elections, and here we are. Nobody's going to watch Phillies Astros. I'm just saying. <laughs> Dan, interesting. We, <laughs> Nobody watched football. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So, um, but I, I really wanted to have a serious conversation about this disconcerting. Uh, national report card on student uh, and district performances throughout the country. So um, what are your thoughts about this assessment? Yeah, I, I think um, I think it's very concerning because if you look at the data, it tells us often what we already know, um, and that is that students that are performing in the lowest uh, 25th and 10th percentiles are the students that had the largest drops in achievement. Um, and we know from research that um, students in those percentiles are often students that are in our, um, our subgroup populations, such as uh, socioeconomically disadvantaged, our English language learners, um, our special education students. Um, but we also know that students that fall into that percentile are often students that are dealing with trauma. And certainly COVID-19 has escalated um, trauma responses, not only for our students, but for our families. So while NEEP certainly is an indication of student achievement um, in the academic world, what we're concerned about um, in schools every day um, are 
is really the question, do students know that they belong here um, in school, that, that they feel safe here, um, and that we have supportive classroom climates that will help students achieve and be resilient um, in the face of coming back to school after two years of, of being in a pandemic. That's, I, I think that is, that is really unsettling uh, news, and of course I should have suspected that I didn't. I didn't have the opportunity, as I just described, today to really look at uh, in any more detail than the headlines uh, of which students were, were particularly affected. But, um, and, and we know there are children being left behind and COVID has done a great disservice to our educational institution. Um, but uh, I, I wanted to add, uh, this is my personal prejudices and bias leaching through right here. Mm-hmm. Could it be that a lot of what we saw in these statistics has a lot to do with virtual learning? Well, it's a good question. Um, I don't think that we know the answer to that. Uh, I think what you see in the data is that um, students that have um, resources that in years past that they have accessed remote learning. So in other words, school districts that have implemented dual enrollment or Classes that uh, districts that have students that have had that have had high levels of technology engagement um, and support in that type of learning did better. And so, in places like Mohawk Trail, um, we were spending a lot of time at the very beginning of the pandemic um, bringing our technology and our devices up to up to where students could engage and staff could engage um, with remote learning. Um, so I don't think it's necessarily a fair question because the starting point for districts was all over the place. Um, and so I don't think that we have a good measure of whether or not uh, the remote learning ex- experiment, so to speak, um, was successful. What I can say is that we learned a lot about how to teach effectively in the remote and, and in the virtual environment. Um, but I do think the research or the, the data suggests that there, there isn't, um, in our youngest grades, particularly in literacy, um, there is no substitute for high-quality instruction when we're trying to teach basic literacy skills um, and really basic math. We are talking with uh, Mohawk Trail uh, Superintendent Cheryl Stanton. So, Cheryl, the, we obviously all of us are going to be a little bit uh, concerned, at least, and maybe chilled by this information. How do we go from here to try to catch up, particularly for those subgroups that you just described before, the le- the less advantaged groupings, the ones that have learning uh, disabilities, the ones who don't have access to technology? How do we catch them up to where we thought that they were going to be when this assessment was done? So I think we give a huge shout-out to our teachers. Um, One of the things we know in turnaround research in schools that have made um, substantial gains in student achievement, and when I say turnaround schools, I mean schools that have um, shown that you can increase student achievement more than a year uh, for students. And the ways that you do that is to have systems of assessment and then systems of intervention for students so that they are getting additional instruction to make up for those losses in instruction that they may have had. Um, And that is uh, research that really came before the pandemic that now all districts are going to be um, really faced with implementing if they don't have those systems already in place. So what you're thinking about is does your school, does your school district have assessments for, at grade level for students, and do you have systems of um, support for staff as they look at that data and then make groupings for students and um, work together and collaborate to plan for instruction that directly um, provides students with resources and support to make up what they may have not had um, in terms of instruction and skills development during the pandemic. So schools that have those systems in place, I think, are well positioned. And so we have some optimism in having students make catch-up growth. 
Um, but in school districts where that has not been the sort of the modus operandi, so to speak, I think those are schools that are going to need more support. Um, and I would applaud the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education in helping schools, as you mentioned, uh, our work at Mohawk Trail in implementing a new literacy curriculum and a new math curriculum two years ago that really emphasizes school districts, teachers working together to use data to drive instruction so that students are receiving specific instruction to bring them up to grade level and or perform at, at grade level and above depending on what their needs are. Yeah, I think that's, that sounds so, um, what, what's the right word, smart because it's so evident, but it also is challenging. I, I want to start this question by just, uh, as you said, giving a shout out to, to our teachers. I both of my children are longtime educators, and I've, I know how honorable and how challenging that profession is and how important it is to have people like you who understand that in positions of authority that make decisions uh, and that advise school districts on, on what direction to go in. Are the teachers, well, for example, the ones you were working with today, is there a, a sense of uniformity? Is there an agreement with what they need and... Why? Among them, I mean. Yes, I would say um, we at Mohawk Trail were fortunate to implement a district-wide elementary uh, schedule. So all of our elementary schools are now on the same schedule um, so that all students are receiving the same minutes of instruction in literacy and math, that students that need more intervention time receive that intervention time, um, and, and teachers truly understand the need for both the curriculum um, but also the intervention time. Um, and we're actually really excited and doing the professional development that is aligning all of our work. Well, that sounds comforting. Um, I still, I, when I look at this uh, national assessment, I see that the average reading, when you say literacy and math, the average reading score at both the fourth grade and the eighth grade level decreased by approximately three points compared to 2019, before the pandemic. And at the, at the fourth grade level, uh, the average reading score was lower than all previous assessment years, going all the way back to 2005. That was chilling to me. We're going to take a break. When we come back, I want to ask Superintendent Cheryl Stanton of the Mohawk District uh, what that says and whether or not it is we should be more concerned about literacy and reading skills than math or both equally we'll be right back with cheryl stanton right after these messages stay with us this is the afternoon buzz with buzz eisenberg 101.5 whmp If you are on the Eversource Reduced Electricity Rate, whether you're on it now or you're eligible, you can tap into Co-op Power's solar arrays and lower your electric bill. A new energy justice initiative allows 120 low-income families to go solar, save money, and become owner members of Co-op Power. Join Co-op Power's 1,200 owner members building community-owned energy. For details, go to the Co-op Power website, coopower.coop. A food co-op is a different kind of grocery store. A credit union is a different kind of bank. Co-ops and credit unions are owned by the people who shop and bank there. Keep it close to home with local co-ops, credit unions, and worker-owned co-ops. Stop at the Old Creamery Co-op on Route 9. For hot mulled cider, a press-grilled sandwich on house-made focaccia, something sweet from our bakery, or what you need to make dinner. Stop at the shop with the cow on top. The Old Creamery Co-op. It happens all over Massachusetts. Anytime I in every home and every community. Be careful on your bike. Learning can happen anytime, anywhere. Bye guys. We'll see you at practice this weekend. 
And no matter how learning takes place in your family's life, DESE is there as your partner. The Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. Never stop learning. Find out more at mass.gov slash back to school. Sponsored by the Massachusetts Department for Elementary and Secondary Education. If you're sharing your Netflix password with family and friends, it's going to cost you. The video streaming company has announced that early next year, it will levy an additional charge when accounts are shared with people who are not part of the account holder's household. Walmart has officially announced plans for Black Friday. Shoppers can expect to see sales and markdowns for the entire month of November, and savings on gifts like electronics, clothing, and home goods will reportedly be more generous than in years past. New and used car inventories continue to improve, but rising interest rates are making all categories of vehicles less affordable, according to a new study. Automotive marketplace iccars.com reports new car affordability is down 13 percent, while used car affordability has plunged 27 percent. I'm Mark Huffman. Learn more at consumeraffairs.com. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. And welcome back. And for those who are just joining us, welcome aboard. We are very lucky today to have Superintendent Cheryl Stanton of the Mohawk Trail Regional High School School District, um, with not just high school, school district, uh, with us because today we're talking about the nation's report card, the uh, national, uh, the educational assessment that's congressionally mandated that um, showed some disconcerting results this year as compared to 2019. The children's proficiencies in math and reading have decreased, and we're talking to Cheryl about it. And during the break, I was asking Cheryl whether she thinks that it is uh, more disconcerting, the, the decrease in reading skills that were measured by the assessment relative to the decrease in math. And your answer, Cheryl? Yeah. First of all, let me say um, Mohawk Trail, and I don't want to leave my friends Hallamont out of the equation. I am superintendent of Mohawk Trail Regional and Hallamont Regional School Districts. Um, so shout out to my Hallamont friends. And my apologies to your Hallamont friends, That's which okay. are my neighbors too. <laughs> yep. Um, uh, you know, as we were chatting, it's a, it is a good question. I think, um, and I'm trying not to cop out, but both are critically important, um, and they feed to each other. Uh, we are asking students now to be able to explain their thinking. Um, so there's a literacy component of mathematics, and there's a mathematics component of what we're asking students to do in literacy when they explain how they're getting to an answer um, about something that they've read. So, for example, students have to give evidence of an opinion that they've drawn on something that they've read, and in mathematics they have to explain um, how they've arrived at an answer. So this, there's, there's more similarities, I believe, now in how we're teaching and what we're expecting students to do. So, you know, we're equally concerned about drops in student performance in both literacy and math. The National Assessment of Educational Progress, uh, that is administered to representative samples of fourth and eighth grade students nationwide. Is it consistent with you've exper what you've experienced in the Mohawk Trail and Hallamont systems? Well, we have not been part of NEEP um, for a while. I think about five years ago, Mohawk Trail uh, was a, a district that participated um, I do think that we see similar but not as significant declines in our MCAS scores. Um, and as you know, MCAS is a rigorous uh, test that we have in the state of Massachusetts, in the Commonwealth. Um, we saw very similar declines um, in literacy. Um, in math, however, in Mohawk Trail, our, our student achievement um, stayed flat. Um, and we're trying to dig into why that is. Uh, we have a new curriculum uh, called Bridges Math that, that we're trying to think about. Is that why our students did better um, through COVID? Uh, because we had manipulatives at home with students. They were still able to do um, some online manipulatives with their teachers. Um, it just seemed uh, that the students performed better. 
Um, and in literacy, we did see the decline that you saw nationally. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I just want to shift gears a little bit. I have been um, uh, heaping, <laughs> piling on to listeners about the questions which are going to be on the Massachusetts ballot on November 8th. Um, early voting, you can be doing it now. If you're not registered, you have until Saturday the 29th. Please get registered. Please vote. There are a series of questions that are going to be on the ballot for questions, and one in particular is called, many are calling it the Fair Share Amendment. It uh, asks voters whether to amend the Constitution, Article 44 of the Massachusetts Constitution, in order to um, raise taxes only on those people who earn more than $1 million a year and only on that portion of their earnings that exceeds $1 million by 4%. The estimate is that it will gain $1.2 to $2 billion in revenue, added revenue for the Commonwealth to be used only to fund public education and public highways, bridges, transportation, only for those purposes. What are, what are, you've got your ears on the ground there among educators. Uh, what are you hearing about that fair share amendment? Yeah, I, I think what we're hearing, um, we're we're, we're part of the Rural um, Schools Coalition um, and part of, uh, obviously, the Rural Commission report that came out um, that recognizes uh, that the rural school districts, rural municipalities have been underfunded um, for decades. Um, add that to the treasurer's uh, report um, that lists the amount of unfunded mandates um, that have come to the municipalities. Meaning uh, things you are required to do that you aren't provided resources to do. Correct. Yep. <clears throat> and so, you know, when I think about the fair share amendment and the rural commission report that recommends an additional $60 million, um, be set aside for districts like Mohawk Trail and Hollemont that are extremely rural, um, that uh, have either declining or flat enrollment, um, and or our very small districts, um, that fair share amendment um, is a significant uh, part of what can provide additional resources to school districts like ours, who, through no fault of our own, um, are seeing shifts in demographics, um, flat or declining enrollment, um, and really struggling with other pieces of, you know, rural living, which is um, housing you know, having more families, um, more people age in homes, um, which is wonderful, but doesn't allow an opportunity for families to have housing options, and so the school populations are declining. Um, the Fair Share Amendment um, could fund a significant part of the Rural uh, Commission report finding that we are chronically under underfunded. That was extremely well explained, and it is true that that if listeners are unaware of it, I suspect you are aware of it, the 4% of anything earned in a year, an earning year, in excess of $1 million, that is not going to hurt anybody who's earning more than $1 million a year, whereas the taxes for people who are earning $30,000, $40,000 a year are painful to those people. And yet, $1.2 billion to $2 billion is estimated is what we're going to accrue as a result of that harmless. Please pay your fair share. You're earning more. Let's have a progressive tax because our children, our future relies on it. I think that you, Cheryl Stanton, the people that work with you, the teachers that are entrusted with the future of our children work so hard for, with so little. And the, the fact that they're doing it with inadequate resources just should be heartbreaking to everyone. So I'm just urging people, please vote yes on question one. Cheryl Stanton, thank you so much. I know how busy you are. I called you last minute. Um, and this reading assessment is important for us to understand and the role that our teachers play in every day trying to fight against very difficult odds to secure our children for a good future. It is critical, and I want to thank you. Uh, thanks, Buzz. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. Everybody else, we're going to be back uh, with uh, Megan Zinn. And, uh, boy, I lost my notes because I was so involved in the education thing. But 
her wonderful writer's block. I'm suffering writer's block right after these messages. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Springfield Mayor Dominic Sarno is being sued for discrimination. Daryl Moss, a longtime mayoral aide, filed an employment discrimination suit against Sarno in the city, alleging he was wrongfully terminated in October 2020. Moss says he was let go after a social media post contesting Donald Trump's open support for Kyle Rittenhouse. The suit claims Mayor Sarno and the city of Springfield engaged in race discrimination, retaliation, negligence, breach of contract, defamation, and free speech violations. Mayor Sarno and the city attorneys will meet with Moss and his legal counsel in court on November 9th for a trial hearing. Millions of dollars in improvements are coming for the Pioneer Valley Transit Authority bus lines. The grant of $54 million, which is through the Federal Transit Administration's low and no emission and bus facilities grant programs, will be used to make improvements on bus facilities in Amherst and the UMass campus, as well as Cottage Street in Springfield. PVTA Administrator Sandra Sheehan says the money will improve the safety and reliability of their fleet, as well as repairing and upgrading the bus bays at UMass. Four battery electric buses will also be bought using the grant money. A convenience store in Florence is facing suspension of their tobacco sales. Jim's Variety at 15 West Farms Road was fined $1,000 for having flavored tobacco products hidden behind the counter. The Gazette reports store manager Hamid Habib admitted to multiple violations of the state law that were discovered during an inspection earlier this month. Habib says most of the products in question were expired and left over from before the flavored tobacco ban went into effect in June of 2020. For the rest of today, cloudy with a chance for showers, highs 58 to 62. Tonight, mostly cloudy, chance for showers, overnight lows 50 to 54. Tuesday, partly sunny and warmer, highs in the upper 60s. I'm 22 New Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. And today, I'm convening this conference because I believe we can use these advances to do even more to make America stronger and a healthier nation, to achieve ambitious goals and hunger in this country by the year 2030. This is a big deal. The President of the United States just announced to the world that ending hunger and promoting better nutrition in this country is a national priority. I think that's a good plan, and I think we can do it. Meanwhile, our neighbors have to eat today. The Food Bank of Western Mass is there for the over 100,000 neighbors who rely on emergency food each month. And if you want to help support the Food Bank of Western Mass, you can join the March for the Food Bank 13 Thanksgiving week. The federal government is making moves when it comes to fighting hunger, and the Food Bank itself is making moves. From Hatfield to Chicopee, you can move with us locally as we march from Springfield to Northampton on day one and Northampton to Greenfield on day two. March yourself, start a team, virtually march. Get involved, make some moves. Monty's March 13, making moves. Monday and Tuesday, November 21st and 22nd. Sign up now at Monty's March. Every Friday morning, Monty visits the wine snobs to talk about wine at State Street. But I don't see wine here, Ringo. What do you got? Well, who am I? You're the spirit guy. Uh-oh. So you're taking me down the road of spirit. So our next whiskey is going back to traditions here. Uh, this is Port Eskeg, eight-year-old single malt scotch. So it's actual scotch? This is Scotland scotch, scotchy scotch scotch. This is an Isla single malt, peatier in style. This one does not suffer supply chain issues because you wouldn't be giving it to us if it did, right? Correct. It says Port Eskeg, which is a location, but it's an independent bottler that gives them their whiskey. Because there's so many different approaches on whiskey, I I really try and hit everything with a very open mind as far as what can be good. This one got 95 points at the, the Ultimate Spirits Challenge. Well, I think this is very good. And how much is this single mall? This is $66.99, so it's kind of right in that low to mid-entry level price point. Find your favorite whiskey and your next favorite whiskey at State Street. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. And this is Buzz Eisenberg, who's recovered his senses after <laughs> suffering speaker block before the break. Megan's in. It is writer's block segment. What do you have for us today? Well, my guest today is writer Jenna Rose Nethercott. And welcome, Jenna Rose. 
Oh, Rose. Thank you very much. Misspeaking. Um, well, thank you for joining us. Uh, Jenna Rose is the author of the novel Thistlefoot, which is a word I have trouble saying, and I'm going to say it wrong. I, I can't do the thistle. It's too fast. Anyway, um, it was published in September of 2022 by Anchor Books. And uh, Jenna, Jenna Rose is a writer and a folklorist. Her, her first book, Lumberjack's Dove, was selected by Louise Gluck as a winner of the National Poetry Series. And whether authoring novels, poems, ballads, or even fold-up paper cootie catchers, her projects are all rooted in myth and what our stories reveal about who we are. She tours nationally and internationally performing strange tales, sometimes with puppets in tow, and conducts research for the podcast Lore. And she lives in the woodlands of Vermont beside an old cemetery, as do I. Not in the woodlands of Vermont, but I do live next to an old cemetery in Northampton. It's the best place uh, to be. It is wonderful. I love living <laughs> Great neighbors. And you, great neighbors, and nobody's ever going to build a Walmart across the street from you. Exactly. Um, and so Thistlefoot is Jenna Rose's first debut novel. Um, and just to start, can you tell us a little bit about the book? Give us a brief, brief synopsis. Yeah, absolutely. So Thistlefoot is the story of Isaac and Bellatine Yaga. They are two contemporary Jewish American siblings in the United States, and they've been estranged for a number of years. Isaac is a street performer, and he's kind of a con man, really. Mm -hmm. And his sister Bellatine is a woodworker and, and super practical, kind of all about control. Mm. And the two of them are polar opposites. Uh, but one day they discover that they are going to receive a mysterious inheritance. Mm -hmm. uh, as we all know, any story with a mysterious inheritance, things go great yes. and nothing weird happens. <laughs> nothing weird that. at all. And so right. the story's done there. Yes. Um, yeah. No. So they, they find out about this inheritance. They don't know what it is. So curiosity gets the best of both of them and they agree to meet up to receive it together. And all that they know is it has arrived in a gigantic shipping crate mm -hmm. from... Wow. Uh, what is now Ukraine, mm -hmm. and from what at the time that this inheritance first began was uh, Russia. Yes, It has come from their ancestral home, a small Jewish shtetl, which uh, really there's been no word of since 1919 when their twice great grandmother had lived there. So they've never met this woman. Mm -hmm. She died long before their birth, but she left them something. And they get together to see what it is. And it turns out that this inheritance is actually a sentient house lofted up on a pair of chicken legs. Of course. Uh, Megan, are you familiar with the folklore of Baba Yaga? Yes, I am a bit, just a little bit, but I'm sure uh, many of our listeners are not. So tell us um, a little bit more about that. So Baba Yaga is a character from Slavic and Eastern European folklore, and she's sort of a witch crone creature, mm -hmm. very volatile, like maybe she'll give you a candle that'll solve your problems, or maybe she'll eat your baby. It okay. really depends on her mood. Okay. But she sort of, she famously lives in this, this house that walks around on chicken legs. Nice. So of course, Isaac and Bellatine's twice great grandmother just so happens to be the infamous Baba Yaga. Mm -hmm. In my version of the yes. book, I've basically stolen her for the Jews. Excellent. She's Jewish now. Yeah, you know, I felt like I could do that. Need more. So she is a, a young Jewish mother living in a small Russian shtetl, which for those who don't know that word, that's a small Jewish town, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, this place is called Gerenkrovka, and it is in 1919 in the months leading up to a pogrom. So the book, in short, follows Isaac and Bellatine as they convert this inherited house into a mobile theater and start traveling America <laughs> in it, um, unbeknownst to them being tracked by a sinister force. Mm. And meanwhile, it dips into the past and we learn about their ancestor and this village in this really tumultuous time in Jewish history and in Eastern European history. Wow. I know it's been compared, so, yeah. uh, well, uh, some of the people who've written blurbs on it have um, likened it to the work of Neil Gaiman, and it certainly sounds like it from your description, um, definitely in that vein. Um, what what was the kernel of Thistlefoot? What what was the initial story or idea that, that it grew from? Well, I mean, like any sort of epic tale, it comes from a number of different places, both in my own life and mm -hmm. in the stories I'm drawn to. But the few kernels I kind of attribute it to most heavily are, one, this is the story of my own family's mm -hmm. ancestry. Yes. So the the story of what happens in Gerenkrovka is based on what occurred in, in an actual shtetl called Rochnistrivka, mm -hmm. where my twice great-grandmother 
came from. When she was about 16 or 17 years old, her parents put her on a ship to America, mm -hmm. said goodbye, sent her here, and they never saw each other again. Um, and so it, it was a process of learning about my own heritage and kind of transplanting it into this folktale. Oh. Um, also, I'm just really, I, I love taking kind of whimsical anachronisms mm -hmm. and seeing how they would fare in modernity. Oh, so really I had cool. this image in my head of like Baba Yaga's house on chicken legs, which I've always loved because I've always been a very itinerant person. Mm -hmm. And so this idea of like a home that can travel with you really was aspirational. Very comforting. Yeah. Yeah. Chicken and legs so are not. Just, yeah, exactly. I had this image of Baba Yaga's house on chicken legs, like standing in a Walgreens parking lot <laughs> and like scratching at a candy bar wrapper and i just thought that was hilarious and so it kind of went from there wonderful um and so thistlefoot draws from jewish and eastern european folklore and i know that you are um very very um, um attracted to folklore and very knowledgeable why do you think ancient folklore still resonates with us so effectively yeah so this is truly my greatest obsession in this <laughs> Good life obsession. So glad you asked, because it's all I want to talk about ever. Like, I'm unbearable at parties, truly, because it's basically this vibe, which is I love folklore specifically because it is a mirror. Mm -hmm. So the reason a story will survive, the reason a story has the chance to even become a folktale is because it says something about the teller or mm -hmm. more vitally, it allows the teller to say something about themselves without I guess, making themselves too vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My sense. particular favorite, yeah, my particular favorite kind of use for folklore and variety of folklore is folklore that seems really whimsical and fantastical, mm -hmm. but is actually this metaphorical parallel for something that is too painful or too taboo to talk about directly. Interesting. And in that way, it allows cultures and peoples to process the things they need to process without either like embarrassing or re-traumatizing themselves while mm -hmm. they're doing it. Mm -hmm. So as a writer, I love this because it allows me to sort of broach pretty heavy topics um, with yeah. a, a softener, I guess, mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. this sort of strange sheen draped over it. And I think that's why they survive is they have this adaptability. Megazine is talking with Jenna Rose Nethercott <clears throat> about her new book, uh, Thistlefoot. I just wanted to throw in here, my wife was raised in a Jewish immigrant, you know, like a hundred people in a very small yes. Philadelphia uh, three-bedroom apartment, and I think there were like 11 people who lived oh, in sounds there. Sounds like my grandfather. Was it? Yes. <laughs> well, Same one place. of the memories she has, is, is she, and she describes, is when they made a soup, there were always the chicken feet sitting upright, <laughs> sticking out of the... <laughs> The, the liquid, and she described it as frightening when she was a kid. Uh, it's funny. So how did you land on the chicken leg, uh, the house on the chicken leg? I, I love that image of the soup. That's It's like it could just get up and run away. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, like I mentioned, the, the house on chicken legs is just an image I've always been really drawn to because of its sort of mobility, I guess, yeah. for lack of a more interesting descriptor but a mobile home when i yep yeah it's a mobile home it's the dream mobile home i, I think i refer to it in the book as the dream rv for haunted jews of course <laughs> of course and, of that, course. and that's always so, been the image around baba yaga correct um well in, or the, many the cases house on chicken legs yeah. was yes, yes. but not, not she the, was not, the not RV. Uh, associated with judaism right that that that's right i didn't know i was aware of that well it sounds so timely for halloween well, right. Yeah, oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. And I'm I'm super lucky and like honored by the fact that it's a uh, book of the month from book of the month club this October. Oh, wonderful. So I didn't know that a lot of existed. people have been making it their spooky read. Which oh, is really fun. that's fantastic. Okay, we are going to take a break. Uh, it, Megan Zinn, it is writer's block. We're talking with Jenna Rose Nethercott. I'm fascinated with her new book, Thistlefoot. And we're going to come back to Jenna Rose right after these messages. To the father I try to be, he's to my bride to be. Pink this is the afternoon buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 1015 WHMP. Life has a way of confusing us, blessing and bruising us. Pink to life, God would 
like is to be joyful even when our hearts lie panting on the floor. How much more can we When it's happening here in the valley, we're talking about it. Modest, very minimal increase in the police budget, largely uh, due to just regular contractual um, obligations. Holyoke is nothing like Northampton and Greenfield. The quality of life uh, issues or demographics very, very different. So I can never compare our police departments. The challenges we have going on in our city are very, very different. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the valley. We are WHMP. Today and every day, millions of people do business with co-ops, food co-ops, credit unions, worker co-ops, energy co-ops, farmer co-ops. Go co-op and build economic power right here in your community. October is co-op month. When you shop at River Valley Co-op, you create hundreds of union jobs. River Valley Co-op does millions of dollars of business each year with local farms and businesses. In Northampton and East Hampton, wild about local. Everyone's welcome, River Valley Co-op. Eat more kale, says the bumper sticker. Why assume I'm not eating enough kale? If you eat at Paul and Elizabeth's, there's always kale. There's the Caesar salad with kale, with romaine, or both. There's the vegetarian platter, vegetables sauteed to perfection, including kale. Or just order a side of sauteed greens. Some people treat kale like one of those good for you but no one really likes it things. Maybe those people have never been to Paul and Elizabeth's restaurant. Inside Thorns in Northampton. We live in one of the most beautiful places in the country, the hill towns and valleys that we call home here in western Massachusetts. At the Franklin Land Trust, we're working with landowners and community members to protect the landscapes that give us productive farmland, clean water, and healthy woodlands. We don't have to travel too far these days to see places where those sorts of things are just a memory. Our staff and volunteers have helped us to protect more than 32,000 acres so far here in our region. And we hope that you'll consider supporting our efforts to take care of the land that we all love. The farms that give us fresh local food, the riverways that give us clean water, and the forests and wildlife habitats that provide us all with healthy air. For more information on our work of landscape conservation, please visit our website at franklinlandtrust.org. That's franklinlandtrust.org. And thank you for your consideration. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. I am just loving being in the studio during this segment every Monday at 4.30, Writer's Block with Megan Zinn, where we get in, sort of introduced to the literati and what people are reading and local independent bookstore uh, workers. So it's just great. So, And Megan Zinn, you are talking to Hampshire grad Jenna Rose Nethercott yep. and discussing her book, Thistlefoot, which I pronounced properly. You can do it. I just can't move my tongue that fast. Um, and I, I was going to mention that you are a graduate of Hampshire College, so I'm glad Buzz mentioned that. Um, and I also, before we get talking again, I wanted to mention that uh, Jenna Rose has a reading and puppet show presentation at Toadstool Books in Keene, New Hampshire, on Saturday, November 5th at 6. And you can find more info on her website, which is jennaroseneathercott.com. And she's also going to be in Cambridge this Wednesday, October 26th, at Porter Square Books at 7 o'clock. And for people who don't know, Jenna Rose begins with a G. Yes. There you go. Because when you told me. There you go. There you go. Yeah. It's um, actually because of my twice great grandmother, uh, the one who came from the shtetl. Her name was Golda. Ah, um, since the G. And well, I think her name was Olga, and her her nickname was Golda or mm -hmm, Gussie. Mm -hmm. And so oh. when my parents were naming me, they wanted to name me something that started with a G, in oh, her honor. That's lovely. That's lovely. Yeah. Um. So, you, getting back to the folklore myth, do you know where your interest grew from? Is this something that you've been into since you were a little kid, or is it a sort of a later um, discovery for you? I definitely had this interest space my entire life. Um, I My dad is a writer too, and also very interested in folklore. So I was really raised okay. on these stories. Um, but I don't think I, I, I kind of remember the lightning bolt moment actually, when mm. I realized that there was this common thread between all the things I was the most interested in. Um, and it was when I was in college actually, mm -hmm. Where, like, I knew I was interested in history, but only certain historical segments, I guess. Yeah. And I knew I was interested in 
in like supernatural things, but only specific kinds of supernatural things that I like couldn't figure out what the commonality was. And then I was in Edinburgh, Scotland for my third year of school. Mm -hmm. So I took a year abroad when I was at Hampshire and I was studying in the School of Scottish Studies. And I took a class called the Supernatural World, which was essentially was focused on Scottish supernatural folklore, which expanded worldwide as well. Yeah. And it was an incredible class. And I realized like, oh, wait, this is the commonality between all Mm -hmm. of these things Mm -hmm. is I'm interested specifically in historical artifacts and his and uh, like supernatural stories that are tied to folklore specifically that are stories people would have told in order to do something really practical Mm -hmm. stories. Like I said before that they would have told in order to talk about something taboo or painful Mm -hmm. or stories they would have told to explain something inexplicable. Like the example I usually give is tuberculosis was often attributed to vampirism or vice versa, you know Um, where, you know, diseases would have these supernatural parallels in order to make sense of them. Um, So that was kind of, what I really am fascinated by all along was not the stories themselves necessarily, but why we tell the stories that we tell. Yeah. And, and Scotland and Edinburgh are a good place to discover that um, supernatural and folklore through line because it um, is so pervasive in in the culture there. Edinburgh is one of my favorite places in the world. So I'm, I'm I'm envious that you got to spend a lot of time there. Um, So if somebody's interested in the supernatural and who like me lives next to a cemetery, what do you, how do you celebrate Halloween? What do you do for Halloween? Oh, great question. I love Halloween. So my birthday is three days before Halloween. Ah, perfect. Yes. And so um, I uh, I was brought home from the hospital as an infant on Halloween day because, you mm-hmm. know, babies stay usually a couple days yeah. after they're born. And uh, uh, allegedly, though there is for some reason no photographic evidence of this, my parents brought me home from the hospital dressed as a tiny cow. Oh, that's lovely. As all Vermont children are required. Oh, of course, to be of course. Entered into society. But what I realized was, um, if I was brought home from the hospital on Halloween day, it means my very first view of society mm-hmm. was just a bunch of children in demon costumes. Oh, wow. And so I must have been like, okay, <laughs> this is how it is. Great. Absolutely. Make a mental note and proceed accordingly uh, for the rest of your life. So I did. Um, and I guess in terms of celebrating Halloween, I love Halloween because it's the one time of year everyone's interests are the same thing as mine are year mm-hmm. round. Yes. <laughs> um, so I love to decorate. I'm going to decorate. I, I'm not actually going to be here at home for Halloween this year. I'm going to be in New Orleans. Yeah, which is a great place to spend um, Halloween, I would, would imagine. Oh, definitely. Yeah, my friend and I have a duo costume planned. I'll be the moon. She'll be the sun. Uh, working on it now. Excellent. And I also love to decorate um Wait a minute. I, I, Why were you the sun and not the? How did you choose which is the sun and which <laughs> is the moon? That's a good question. I, that is a good question. Uh, we chose who was the sun and who was the moon because we kind of arbitrarily chose it at first. And then I was like, actually, wait, I think I have a good one for the sun. Do you want to switch? And it turns out a friend of hers who's like in quarantine because of COVID right now has been like funneling her temporary isolation madness into making her a uh, sun headdress Ooh. and so Cass was like I'm sorry I'm in too deep we can't Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> yeah that's that sounds fantastic um and it was you know speaking of the pandemic and COVID which you know is still here did the um I assume you were writing a lot or all of Thistlefoot during the pandemic is that would that be true yeah so I had um I kind of outlined it and started it about a year before I dove in solidly, just wrote the first 20 pages. Mm -hmm. And then uh, in January of 2020, I started writing really regularly on a regimen. I was writing uh, 600 words four days a week, which doesn't sound like a lot, but for me is a lot. As a writer, I I think that sounds sounds great. Oh yeah, as a poet, wow, that would be several poetry books a day. Absolutely. So yeah, I mean, the Lumberjack stuff is 7,000 words. This will fit is 122,000 words. So it was a bit of a change. Yes. Um, But yeah, so I was writing regularly when the pandemic started. And then I took a month long break uh, to go insane. And then I picked back up and wrote, yeah, wrote almost the entire thing while in lockdown. Which means I very certainly spent more time with these invented people I made up than yes. with any actual people. Yes. Well, Generos you know, did nothing cut. weird to my personality. Who do you, who did you inhabit more, uh, Valentine or Isaac? 
So Bellatine and Isaac, I would say, are kind of two different sides of myself. So I I feel like both of them equally. Like Bellatine is very much the kind of control freak version of me, which I certainly am. Uh, she really like needs everything to be just so she's super type a Mm -hmm. and she's trying to keep things in control because she's afraid of going out of control yeah and so i'm very much like that Uh, i'm kind of yeah persnickety in that way Mm -hmm. and then isaac is this kind of he has this like deep insatiable restlessness he's never Mm -hmm. satisfied with Mm -hmm. anything and he's always kind of running And I am the same way, you know, all through my 20s, I really wasn't in the same place for more than a few months at a time. Uh, And it wasn't until COVID forced me to sit still Mm -hmm. that I finally spent like more than one year in the same place. Yeah. So yeah, I think both of them, they're really opposites of each other Mm -hmm. in so many ways, but they're um, both, I, I internalize both of them all the time. Yeah. And that's a, that's a hard, that's a hard way to live to be, um, sort of really needing order, but always traveling, um, and always, um, restless (laughs) and wanting to travel because you can't have order when you travel all the time. It's impossible. Yeah. Um, Well, it's less, I'm, I'm pretty flexible when I'm on the road. Like I'm kind of a go with the flow person mm-hmm, in that way, mm-hmm. but I do like to be in control of it Yeah, okay. in, in the sense, sense that like, I'm fine with unpredictability, but I like to be the one that gets to make the decision at the end of the day. Yeah, so, sense. you know, if I'm sleeping in my car, that's fine because I get to choose. Where okay. I park, that makes sense. You know? yeah. I got that. <laughs> that I got that. Um, and um, so what, what aspects of writing this book brought you the most joy? Oh, I love that. Um, I loved writing the chapters that were in Thistlefoot the House's voice. Oh, neat. Um, yeah. So there are these flashback chapters throughout the book. You know, the, the most of the book follows Isaac and Bellatine as they're traveling in their, uh, across America in their house. But there are these flashback chapters about Gerengrovka and Baba Yaga, and they are told in the style of a folktale. And the narrator for these chapters is actually is, the house is the itself. House. That's wonderful. And the wonderful. house yeah, we is such have a to... liar and so unpredictable that it was really fun to write in. That's so uh, unfortunately, we're out of, almost out of time. So tell us one more time where this event is going to be yes. in Keene and yes, then in Boston. Yes, still Books in Keene on Saturday, November 5th at 6. And um, there will be puppets. And um, also quarter, uh, came in Cambridge in, at Porter Square Books, Wednesday, October 26th at 7 o'clock. And there's info on both at Jenna Rose's website, which is Jenna Rose with a G, Nethercott, N-E-T-H-E-R-C-O-T-T uh, right. dot com. So and the name of the book is Thistlefoot. And it sounds so and delightful. The puppets are really something special. They're worth seeing. It sounds like it's, it. It's a it wild like puppet it. show. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. This was lovely. All right. It is lovely. Happy Megan's Halloween. In... <laughs> Happy Halloween too. Yes. <laughs> right. I'm gonna I'm gonna get in my car. You don't know this. My car has chicken feet under instead of wheels. That's really that's a, that's an interesting <laughs> angle on it. Fascinating. Uh, okay. <laughs> big lie. Megan Zinn is that was just so, thank you so much for bringing her to us. Thank you. Thank you for being here, Jenna Rose. My pleasure. All right. All right. Writer's Block with Megan Zinn. Okay, everyone, thanks for joining us today. Have a great evening. Join us tomorrow at 4 o'clock on the Afternoon Buzz. Bye-bye. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. We speak not of the princes and prelates and periwig charioteers riding triumphantly laureled to lap the fat of the years. Rather, we speak of the maimed, of the halt, of the blind in the rain and the cold. Of these shall my songs be fashioned and tales be told. And we do that every day at 9 o'clock. Get in on the conversation. Bill Newman. Weekdays at 9 and again at 5. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts. Live and local news and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. Northampton Radio Group Station. It's